Hey, everybody, and we are live with you. Um, you know, every time we go live right before, there's always a few stories that pop up that are like last minute. We, we get them on the iPad here, and I'm going to bring those up first because kind of interesting stuff. So first one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring up here. This tweet's going around from a number of, um, or post. I still have a problem calling them tweets. You know, it's like it's built into the psyche. This post on X is going around um, from a number of different news accounts. So Biden apparently just said that if Trump wasn't running, he's not sure that he would be running. The way I see this, this is the beginning of the exit. This is the beginning of the off-ramp for Biden. I've been saying it for years. There is no way Joe Biden is going to be the Democrats' nominee in 2024. They can't do it. I mean, it's just, it's simple math. You look at the numbers, there is no way Joe Biden is going to be their nominee. He is, at this point, probably one of, if not the worst person they could run because it's just a track record of failure. There's a lot of people who don't consider themselves particularly political people that when they see Joe Biden, what they see is failure, period. I mean, it's there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's what they see. They see failure. They see their massive grocery bill. I mean, geez, I was just out this last week grocery shopping, and it was insane. It was insane. I was thinking about it. I talked with the person at the cash register. They said this is something like every day they see people's eyes popping out when they see the final number. And, you know, people pay their gas at the gas station. You know, this is the stuff they see when they look at Joe Biden, aside from the fact that it's just infuriating, you know, for people like me who are more political, you know, I think of all the times he dehumanized people who have my ideology, you know, the the very like totalitarian antics that he pulled in some of his major speeches. Remember the remember the speech he did where he had the big red lights behind him? You know, it looked like it honestly looked like he was giving a speech like from some sort of demonic place. And he called us all, you know, MAGA Republicans and and he was uh he was going off about that. Um I think this this statement from him is the beginning of that off ramp. And I've long said I thought it's going to end up being a, a bait and switch at the end with, um, with with Newsom. However, it could be somebody else. It could be a Michelle Obama. It could be, you know, um, some other character out there. I don't think it'd be Kamala either because Kamala, frankly, she has worse approval numbers than Joe Biden does, which I'm not even sure how that's possible. Maybe, maybe it's because she was supposed to be in charge of the border and we all know how that's going i mean we literally have the biden administration cutting holes in the border okay they have literal holes they've cut at the border fence at these barriers and then they're suing texas to get rid of a barrier that's in the rio grande there so i mean is what it is another clip going viral right now um on my account it originally i saw it catch up so i thought that this was from today on cbs apparently this was from um a week or two ago, something like that on CBS and just never really got shared widely. Nikki Haley was asked about what should happen if a 12-year-old wants to get a sex change, okay? And here was the answer that Catchup posted. Another question is what care should be on... Uh, Madam Ambassador, another question is what care should be on the table when a 12-year-old child in this country, assigned female at birth, says, actually, I feel more comfortable living as a boy. What should the law allow the response to be? Well, I think the law should stay out of it, and I think parents should handle it. So Nikki Haley was asked this question, and her response is that the law should stay out 
of a 12-year-old wanting a sex change, and we should just let the parents handle it. I want you guys to imagine for a second we were talking about drugs and you had a child who was 12 years old who just they really want to do heroin. Okay, for some reason, they've got looped into some social feedback thing online and they're like on Tumblr or TikTok or something. And they've fantasized about doing heroin and go to their parents. I want to do heroin. And the parents say, you know what? We're all in. Let's let you do heroin. What politician in their right mind would say, you know what? Let's leave it to the parents to handle it. Some parents are going to choose to give them heroin. Some are not no sane human being would allow that. No sane human being would say, oh yeah, let's leave it to the parents to decide whether or not to give the child heroin, okay? There's certain things where you've got to set lines in society that you say, these are our moral boundaries. And if we can't have a moral boundary at saying that you cannot mutilate a child and give them a sex change at 12 years old, then we do not have a society. Okay, this should be one of the simplest barriers to set. The fact that we have somebody in the Republican primary who, when they heard that question, did not full-throatedly say that the law and everybody who's elected to office needs to stand united against the mutilation of children should be very concerning to everybody involved. Okay? Nikki Haley has never been anything but, but you know... Um, Nice, I guess. I mean, she follows me. That's 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 great, but it doesn't really count for much with me. I mean, like you could follow me, block me tomorrow. I I really don't care, to be perfectly honest. I do care about children, though. I care about innocence. I care about us not hurting the next generation. And I've got to be honest. This this is frankly a really gross answer to me. I could tell from the catch up. You know, there, there's more to this answer, but even that on its on its own, right there, that very first part is disqualifying that those words should never leave your mouth, that this is not something that the law should get involved with. Parents should handle it. I'm interested to see what you guys think. You can call in right now and talk with me about it at 615-703-5888. That's 615-703-5888. Go ahead and if you want to call in about this issue, I am interested to see what people thought seeing this clip where Nikki Haley essentially says the law should not be involved. And we should leave this to parents to decide whether 12-year-olds go forward with sex changes or not. I frankly, I think that it is disturbing and there's, there's no planet, there's no world where this is okay. Um, so that's the stuff that got added late to the show today. We'll dive into the stuff um, you know, we we're planning on talking about. I'm not sure if we ever got to it on the last show about um, Michael, Michael Hayden, General Michael Hayden. He was uh, head of CIA at one point, and he's trying to make the argument that you know, Christians in America who have the Second Amendment are no different than members of Islamic terror groups. I just want to bring that back, okay? This is obviously some sort of meme photo on the left. They're at the Mental Health Administration, and you've got somebody with a gun and a Bible and an American flag. I think it's it's probably, I don't know where the photo's from. It very well may be a leftist who's doing some sort of joke photo or something, or somebody on the right doing a meme. I have no clue. What I do know is it's disgusting to pretend that Islamic terrorism is in any way similar to Americans, Christians in America exercising the Second Amendment, okay? Which is clearly what he's he's saying here when he says there's no difference, okay? Um, and I'm happy that he's blocked me. Um, I've never had an interaction I can remember with Michael Hayden, but he's blocked me. Another one of those swamp creatures that frankly is out of touch with the country, with, with normal people. Um, 
people like him are responsible for things like this. The Pentagon is now moving toward letting AI weapons autonomously decide to kill humans. I think this is pretty concerning. You know, I mean, think about humans saying, you know what, you have the keys to murder human beings, machine. We're saying this machine, this, this AI, we are giving you the keys to murder human beings. I think that that's something we should all be uncomfortable with. On the other hand, you know, the only sane argument there is here is that some of our enemies are doing the same thing. However, you know, once you open that can of worms, there is no going back. There's no putting the genie back in that bottle. Once you have AI kill human beings, making those decisions on their own about human life, you are opening up, opening up a can of worms I think we are going to regret as a society, as a planet, as, as, a, as a human race. I think our entire race, our entire species of humans are going to come to regret the way that we are opening dangerous doors with AI. This is just one of them, one of many. And I think it's something, you know, we'll be talking about a lot more. I, I have told you guys we have a documentary coming out um, in January. And we're very excited about it. We'll be giving release dates and a ton of information very soon and all the big you know, guests we have in it. And there's a lot of really amazing people, some people that I guarantee you guys are, are big followers of will be in it. Um, but I think my next documentary actually is going to be about AI. It, it is such a large part of what's coming down the pike here. We've got to cover it extensively. The dangers, the advancements, the things it could be good for, the things that it's going to do to society, to our economy. So much change is going to come from that. Um, now I want to get into something spicy happened last night. This is crazy. This really, really nuts. This explosion in Virginia. There's a lot of people saying a lot of things about it. I really dove into it. So if you haven't heard about this story, there was this massive explosion last night in Virginia. I'm going to go ahead and play you guys the video now, and then I'll tell you guys what I found about the guy at the center of all of this. I'm going to play that from the beginning one more time in case you missed it. Here we go. So the man at the center of all this, his name is James Yu. Okay, and I immediately got a hold of some of his social media and I was able to dig through it. I read through documents for hours. So this guy... You know, some people are thinking this is spy games at work, what happened, okay? Um, I'm going to spell out why I do not believe that's the case um, and why I think this is a very mentally disturbed man who unfortunately ended up at this point in his life where this happened and we've now gotten confirmation that his body was found among this. Um, so one of the reasons people thought spy games were at work here is that there was an account last night that was posting on YouTube pretending to be him saying all this stuff and you know we know he died in the blast so it was not him somebody made a fake account they were doing that on youtube that's number one so if you saw that that live commenting going on on a youtube account that was not his youtube account i had his actual youtube account 
and I shared it last night. People saw it. I think that thread now where I kind of broke this all out has been viewed by about a million people now. So some of you may have seen that. Um, but we're going to get deeper into this, okay? And to understand full context of what happened, um, you know, I'm going to play this eyewitness video first, and then I'm going to get into the documents and show you some of the documents I thought were important to share with y'all, okay? And then they ended up driving the, the, um, the SWAT truck through the front door with like a pile driving arm. And um, at that point, he started firing uh, a weapon back. I mean, I, I believe it was like an AR. It was a high power. It was a high caliber weapon. It's not a flare. They shot flares at the beginning. He was not shooting flares near the end. Uh, they started returning fire with non-lethal weapons, with a non-lethal... Uh okay, so there's more to that, but I'm just going to play that part because um, that gives you what, what I need you to have. So basically, how this whole thing started, that's a question a lot of people have. Why was somebody filming when that explosion happened? So let me start from the beginning. Flares were going off in the neighborhood. Somebody was shooting flares off. It was James Yu, okay? One of the neighbors calls it in. When they call it in, obviously, they're filming this stuff for... for evidentiary purposes most likely and then when the police arrive they're continuing to film uh different parts of the neighborhood so this this uh, neighbor here was filming when police had arrived so police were already there when this explosion occurred okay now the next thing that happens why this eyewitness is important is he talks about the fact that james you did begin to fire an actual firearm and that's going to be important in a minute because it 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 ties into some of the other stuff with these documents so um to begin, you know, you can see from this post here, I believe this one was from his LinkedIn, he was uh, complaining a lot about different people being a part of this giant conspiracy against him, in this case, some of his neighbors, okay? And he, you've got to look at the writing style here too, okay? So the writing style here is something that is fairly typical. When you see these documents as they lay out, you'll see even more what I'm talking about, fairly typical among schizophrenic people. Um, it's, it's very rambly. It doesn't entirely make sense. It's missing details that are usually necessary in a story. Um, and it also points out things that are kind of bizarre, like they drive a VW Tiguan, okay? Like the school they attended. It just doesn't make sense. There's nothing about it that's sensical. It's just all over the place. And then there's stuff about, you know, I mean, this guy clearly did not like white people. I think that's something you can see also in his ideology. He was anti-white. You'll see that in multiple posts. Um, he says things like, this is how white people operate. And this is why they outnumber other races almost seven to one, which is is um, you know, something else. Um, and... You see here in this next one, you know, this guy was taking photos of his neighbors and talking about their children and saying that they're spies. Um, so he said that his neighbor, his neighbor's wife and their children were spies um, and then pointed out the type of dog they have. This is just strange stuff, okay? He was not a fan of Trump. So when he says stupid Donbass in this, he's talking about Trump. Um, and again, is displaying his hate for white people in this post. Um, and you can see in this next one here, again, talking about white people. It's This is a constant theme in, in some of this stuff. Is he's, uh, he's saying he's fighting for the rights of all people of color. Um, this isn't the core of what he's angry about, though. Okay, so that's just a side note of his ideology. 
And here's another one. So in his description, his bio on YouTube, he has on there that the U.S. is the world's biggest terrorist. That's a Noam Chomsky quote, uh, quote rather, um, who's a very far left individual. If you've never heard of him, he's very far left, um, sort of, I don't know what you'd call him, um, talker. He's a thinker of some sort. I don't know. Uh, if he's a thinker, he's not a very good one. But he has been good at fooling a lot of people into sort of aligning with his ideology. Um, so again, this is, you see here, a lot of nonsensical, just the way he's writing, okay? Now, he claims to have had experience with the uh, Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States as some sort of security, okay? So he says, former head of information and physical security for the international telecom for international telecommunication company with that Committee for Foreign Investment in the United States security experience. What that is exactly, we have not been able to fully ascertain, okay? But that is the jumping off point for some of the people online who are thinking this is some sort of spy games thing. But here's the thing. You know, I'm no stranger to saying, okay, the narrative is not what we're being sold, okay? And that you've got all of these elements of government that are trying to do things surreptitiously and then sell us a narrative afterwards. I do not think this is one of those cases because there is no why at the core of his ideology. So when you look through all of his writing, which I did, um, I kept looking for the why. You know, if you look for, like, say, uh, Epstein, you know, why was that hidden for so long? There's a lot of whys there, okay? If you look at any number of cases like that where the government has been party to concealing something or where they're doing something that is insane or nefarious in some way, there's a why. In this case, he never spells out the why. It's not like he had some documents he wanted to release or he was holding something. He was going to be a whistleblower. It's nothing like that. The core of his ideology, what he's upset about actually, has a lot to do with his wife and his sister, who he claims are working in this in this large scheme against him with the government and everybody else to just ruin him. Not for a particular reason. He never even explicitly says something like, for them to kill him. It's just like this idea of ruining him and embarrassing him. He even in one of these documents started talking about how he believed that the media was making fun of him when he watched TV. He thought certain words they used were words being used specifically to make fun of him. And that's obviously delusions of grandeur that ties in very well with schizophrenia. Um, but when you look at these, so he was sending stuff like this to U.S. attorneys, like this document I have on screen right now, and to people like Robert Mueller. So he was an avid watcher of MSNBC, this guy. And, um, you know, the fact that he reached out to Mueller while he was special counsel looking into the Russia hoax interesting that he reached out to Mueller saying that his case definitely might tie in in some way and then when he lays out his case it has nothing to do with any of this it's all about his wife his sister and his gripes against them for hospitalizing him for his mental health and he spells out in it and admits that certain family members of him of his were concerned about his mental health and had brought up that his paranoia was increasing and that they were worried about how paranoid he had become and so the FBI did pay him a visit at one point, so he was known to the FBI, which is, again, that is concerning in itself because it seems like every time some crazy thing happens with some, you know, lone wolf lunatic, somehow the FBI interacted with them ahead of time, 
and nothing was done. And I think that's a problem we very clearly have to look into. And, you know, I've advocated for a long time. I think the FBI needs to be broken up um, in the top ranks and you need to completely replace the top ranks of the FBI or you need to break it up entirely scattered into different agencies because we have all these different law enforcement agencies within government. And there's plenty of places to put these people and sort of break apart the FBI into different pieces. And I think you might get a little more accountability that way, especially if you branch these things off into specific areas of focus. So say you have an area focused entirely on fighting human trafficking, you're going to be able to have better oversight over that specific subject if it's all run through one group of people versus being a layer of the FBI's onion. And so when we look at this, to give context to why the FBI visited him, though, it was because a U.S. attorney, who is, uh, Kennedy is his last name, um, U.S. attorney J.P. Kennedy was concerned about the number of times this guy had emailed with all of these kind of crazed screeds about his family and being hospitalized, and he believed the whole hospital was working against him in concert with his family and his sister. And he had asked him to stop. The guy didn't stop, so he gave him a warning he was going to end up calling in the FBI. The guy continued and eventually U.S. Attorney J.P. Kennedy did call in the FBI and the FBI met with him. What happened during that meeting, that is not public and that's a question the FBI needs to answer. Um, but you can see in this, he was even asserting, so this is a document he had posted on his YouTube account because some people have asked, how'd you get these documents? On his YouTube, he basically used it as a storage device where he put these documents into videos and it was just document after document every like five seconds and it was very strange. But again, the way that the mind operates among people who are afflicted with schizophrenia, it is kind of strange, you know? And so this seemed totally normal to him to do apparently. Um, he actually asserts in this that he believes New York Times reporter Glenn Thrush posed as one of those FBI agents in a wig and a hat uh, I'm sorry, wearing a wig and shaving his facial hair. He believes he recognizes and remembers Mr. Thrush's face as one of the men who appeared at his house in 2017 claiming to be an FBI agent. He emailed this to that U.S. attorney again who was the one who sent FBI agents saying, I want you to confirm that they're actually FBI agents, which he had already confirmed in a previous thing. And this is when he brings in his theory about Glenn Thrush to the New York Times. You see, this is one of those nonsensical things doesn't it, it makes no sense okay even if the fbi was going to use some heavy-handed muscle to intimidate somebody it would surely not be a famous journalist okay um not that i think that glenn thrush is a particularly good journalist in fact i would say he's not a journalist at all um you know but still he's somebody who's on tv he's a talking head people can recognize him that would be a bizarre weird thing to do it doesn't make any sense you know and so when you look for the sensical nature of some sort like here's the thing even a lot of crazy conspiracies that are true or end up true they make sense when you really walk through them this makes no sense nothing about the documents i went through made any sense so you can see here, this is one of those emails from the acting U.S. Attorney J.P. Kennedy at the time when he was contacted. He said that, you know, I've received your emails. I forwarded them to the FBI. Um, and he's asked them, you know, um, at one point, this was previous. This was in February 2017 when he was still trying to just kind of get this guy off his back. He suggested that he secure a private attorney. Well, you didn't like that. Um, and so, you know, 
it resulted in these copious emails that continued after that demanding that he do something. Um, this is a list of some of many conspirators that he alleged were a part of this scheme to you know, ruin his life, essentially. His sister's best friend, realtors in town, his former attorney and his assistant, former tenants that he had, uh, members of the YMCA, members of the Monroe County Police Department, his neighbors, his staff members at the Rochester General Hospital. I mean, the list gets really ludicrous and it includes his wife and his sister. And again, he talks about, number one, he's an alcoholic. Okay, so he talks about his alcoholism um, and talks about, you know, being upset with his wife over the uh, hospitalization over his mental health and upset with his sister. He, he claimed his sister was in on this whole thing because she wants to be a famous journalist and that his wife was doing all of this to him and in concert with the government and all these other entities to conspire against him because she was upset that when they were about to get married, right before the marriage, he lost this big job that he had that was a good job and that she has resented that forever and this was her secret resentment um, coming out in this conspiracy against him. Um, and so, you know, you see here, he continues with this Glenn Thrush conspiracy saying, is Mr. Glenn Thrush being silenced? If yes, why and by whom? Um, you know, so he's still bothering this Kennedy guy. And the, the Kennedy U.S. attorney, I'm sorry, J.P. Kennedy, the U.S. attorney in that area said, yes, those were authentic FBI agents. Again, so this is just a little bit of backup for what I told you earlier so you can see the document yourself. Um, and then this is from his uh, LinkedIn page. You can see here, he's got the Noam Chomsky quote again. He's got F the police quote. This is, this is somebody very clearly with a left-wing ideology, but I would say I don't think that's at the core of why he did this. I mean, obviously, leftism can make mental illness worse. However, I don't think that this was... Um, a politically motivated explosion. I'll put it that way. I think that this was really an explosion born of mental illness. For people who, um, you know, were looking for more information, this is really one of the only things that um, was very political that was a part of his whole screed and story is he did claim some people were upset about this photo, which he claims depicts his father in this photo, along with Ted Kennedy, who's deceased. So I'm not really sure who's upset about a photo like this. Um, you know, even a conservative like me, like, I mean, Ted Kennedy's dead. This guy's dad is probably dead. I don't know. Um, it's a pretty old photo. So I don't know who would be upset by this photo. Um, it's kind of neither here nor there. I did think it was important to talk about, though, because too often when these things happen, people kind of branch out into directly looking for, you know, um, it to be something else. And sometimes it is. But in this case, I truly do believe this is just a man who was very mentally ill. And it opens up a different conversation, though. You know, our electeds should really be thinking about the mental illness problem in our country because it's at the bedrock of so many problems we have. You know, you talk about guns. First of all, this is another example of why gun control does not work, period, okay? In Virginia, they have red flag laws, they have all this stuff, nothing was done, okay? Because guess what? Criminals are always going to get what they want to get and do, okay? They're, they're going to act on the things they wanna act on. And um, yes, there are certain things you can do to mitigate, like say in the case of pedophiles, you can have the death penalty. That will mitigate some of them um, you know, it'll stop some of them rather from acting on their, you know, disgusting, vile 
desires. And so in this case, though, with things like gun control, the idea of it never works because you're really only stopping law-abiding people from having a gun when they need it, and you're also advertising to crazy people where they can find a bunch of unarmed people when you've got these gun-free zones. And you see this, I mean, California is a great example, okay? California has every gun control law that the Democrats would like to have nationally, okay? Nobody disputes this. They have passed all those through their legislature. Gavin Newsom signed them into law. They've got everything that the Democrats have ever wanted, okay, when it comes to that, um, at least publicly what they admit. Now, on the flip side of that, despite having all of that, guess who has the most mass shootings in the country? California. And then Delaware, per capita, has the most. Delaware is another Democrat-run state with gun control laws, yet they are the highest per capita for mass shootings. So when you look at a case like this, you know, you've got to wonder what is the right way to handle a crazed person like this, and it is very clearly to commit them. We need more mental institutions. Mental institutions got a bad rap because they they frankly, they were abusive back in the day, you know, a number of them, you know, maybe not all of them, but a number of them were. The truth is, though, we have the technology and ability to provide really good oversight at this point, if done right. And we need the ability for family members who love somebody to be able to commit them. A number of parents replied to that thread I wrote about this case, talking about their own child who has schizophrenia and how hard it is to be able to get anything done because they want to get them help. But the most they can do is get maybe a five or 10 day hold on them and then they're gone. And that's in you know, honestly, the good case scenario, okay? Um, the worst case scenario is there's places where really nothing is done. You go to a place like California, they don't really do anything. They let somebody with schizophrenia sit on the street and do whatever they want and, and scare, quite honestly, a lot of people. And so we've got to have some sort of change when it comes to how we deal with mental illness in our country. I think that the government, we fund a lot of crazy stuff. You know, we're going to do an episode soon where we go through all of these grants that the government is giving out. And it's for insane stuff. I mean, the stuff I've gone through, you wouldn't believe. You're not going to believe some of the stuff we're funding. Why aren't we funding real research and making it a priority into finding out what natural remedies or therapies may possibly help or what early intervention or maybe new treatments could be used because doing the same thing over and over again is not working. It's the definition of insanity and it's not working when it comes to mental illness. So we need to try new things. We need to have open minds. We need to be going after this issue to, to solve it because it's gonna then have a trickle down effect on so many other areas, whether it be crime, homelessness, you know, uh, violence. You go into all these different areas this is going to have a measurable, you know, difference when it comes to all those issues. If you, if you can solve it, you know, even 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 partially, let's say you make it 50% better, that is a massive improvement, but you're not going to get there unless you try something new. And that's the problem is we we really are not trying anything new. Um, another thing I, I want to jump to is this uh, situation um, I came across this week. And it has to do with Jane Goodall. Okay, so Jane Goodall, she, you know, I'm just, I'm going to play the video of Jane Goodall and what she said, but essentially Jane Goodall is making the argument that humanity has too many people. Okay, we just have too many people. There's too large of a population. We don't have 
anywhere near the number of resources we need to be able to take care of all these people and we need less of them okay and of course because she's liberal she would like to do this painlessly okay whatever that means okay I, maybe she wants to drug us so we go into nice sleepy time and then we're gone but i want you to listen to this video we'll discuss and then we're going to discuss elon musk's reaction to this after i posted it Jane Goodall, my age is 80. My job is giving people hope. If I'm allowed to change a few things, uh, if I just have this magic power, I would like to, without causing any pain or suffering, reduce the number of people on the planet because there's too many of us. It's a planet of finite resources and we're using them up. But what I really, really, really would love to change is the unsustainable lifestyle of everybody else. We just greedy. Okay, Jane, you say that you are someone who brings hope to humanity. Where was the hope there, okay? You basically just made an argument that you would like to eliminate part of humanity, as long as you can do it, of course, you know, painlessly, okay, for, for all of us plebs out there. This is honestly... Like this is, the, these are the rantings of a lunatic, okay? In my opinion, there is nothing more beautiful than life. We have been given this gift, okay? And it's a gift. And here's what this really comes down to. You either believe in humanity or you don't. Let me say that again. You either believe in humanity or you don't. You either believe in the ability of humans to reach beyond, to expand the stars, to do incredible things, to create and innovate. You either believe in that or you don't, and Jane clearly does not. See, I believe in humanity. I believe that human beings, we can be the greatest. We have unlimited potential. We can go into the stars. We can expand throughout the universe. We can tap into unlimited resources. Our kids, our grandchildren, they should be, can be, and must be better off than we are. And if they're not, it's because we failed. We failed in so many ways. And one of those chiefly would be failing to see the potential and believe in the potential of humanity because we have it in us. Look at the incredible things our ancestors have done to bring us to this point in history. And what do we do to thank them for it? We have a bunch of spoiled people who go out there and they cry about how we just don't have enough to be able to go around to everybody. Jane, if one of these chimpanzees was here and I said, you know what chimpanzees, I think we just need to get rid of the whole lot of you guys. You guys are cute and everything, but you're really eating up resources and you guys do cause some pollution with your farts. So we just want to get rid of all the chimpanzees. You would think I was not only ludicrous, you would think I was a monster because guess what? That is monstrous. It's, it's insane. It's a crazy idea, but you are no less crazy than that idea. In fact, you are more crazy, more crazy to assert the idea that we should have less people because the reality is we actually need more. If humanity has a problem, it is not overpopulation. It is that we are not replacing our dead fast enough. And it is responsible for all of these geniuses out there who think it's a good idea 
to bring in migration from countries and cultures that do not match with the West and replacing our dead with those migrants who do not respect our culture, they do not respect our customs, they do not respect our way of life. They fundamentally want to change our country, our culture, and our constitution. They want it to reflect their own society, which to be perfectly honest, if we go back and we look at their societies, there is nothing to write home about. We should not desire or want to be anything like the cultures they are importing. And that's the truth. Maybe the only caveat to that being when you look at, you know, my fellow Hispanics out there who are coming in here through Central America and, and through Mexico, the one thing you could take away is their love for family and faith. Those are honorable things. But guess what? We still have a country to run and a border that needs to be respected. But when you look at the entirety of humanity, this is essentially a call for people to have less kids, at the very least, to have less kids or to have no kids at all. And if you catch the end of her statement, where she talks about fundamentally transforming you know, our way of life, essentially, because we're all just greedy. Again, what that really is, is a call for you to have much less, okay? Not because of some, you know, really, let's say, I'll put it this way. It's not out of the goodness of her heart. Okay, it's not out of the goodness of Jane's heart that she wants you to have less. Because guess what? Her friends, the elite, the people at the World Economic Forum, the people in Davos, they're not going to have less. They're going to continue to have their private jets, their caviar, their fancy dinners, everything that you could ever imagine. Their fancy vacations, they'll go wherever the hell they want to, and they will use people like you as their servants. And you will be expected to smile on the measly wage they give you and maybe whatever tip if you're lucky. Their lives will not fundamentally change. If anything, it will get better but they want your life to get worse. To be perfectly honest, the world that Jane and her ilk would be happy with is one where most humans live in a pod. You're given what the government gives you. You're expected to shut up and smile and be happy about it. And you're expected to pretend everything's okay. And guess what? If you step out of line, it's all gonna be taken from you and you'll be put somewhere else where people can't see you. And if anybody talks or asks about you, well, their social credit score will go down and they'll be disappeared too. That is the world these people are fundamentally after. And it's not hard to see that that's the case, okay? In, in fact, I would say at this point, if you can't see that that is the future they are seeking, you are blind, maybe willfully so, because you don't wanna see how dark things have gotten. But these people have been trained transformed by something. I don't know what it is. It is some sort of evil. And it has made them believe that that world is a utopia that they want more than anything. And so to them to flippantly talk about human life as if it's nothing, it is nothing for them. That's why it's so easy for her to roll off her tongue, the idea that maybe we just need to painlessly get rid of some of humanity, or at the very least, make sure all of you have less. That idea should be disgusting to everybody. And if I seem impassioned, it's because this is real. This is not just a story. This is not just news. This is an ideology. It's not even about Jane, okay? She's a figurehead, honestly, really probably a useful pawn at best. But she is representing an ideology here that seeks to destroy everything you know and love. And that should make you angry. It should make you righteously angry because we are at a turning, a turning into an era where people need to decide who they are, what matters to them. Because for me, when I look at the world these people want, I see two very different roads. And the reality is if, if my choice is to be alive 
but be in that pod life where you need to be silent and you'll eat whatever bugs the government gives you, I'd rather be dead, honestly. And, and, and that's just, you know, that's the, that's the truth of it. I mean, it, that dystopian world, I want no part of it. I want to promote life. I want to promote innovation. I want to promote a, a future where humanity is amazing, where people are just hungry to have a larger family, where there is plenty to go around, where our, our innovation and our mindset is one of success and grabbing at the best, wanting to be the best competitiveness and greatness being celebrated. Elon Musk responded to what I said about Jane, and he said, she is so wrong. Arguing in favor of reducing humanity is arguing for genocide. The unborn have no voice. And again to that I say, they really, they don't. And it's up to us to be that voice. Because this ideology is not just about getting rid of people right now. In fact, I would argue it is more so about getting rid of the unborn. They want to change the future. They know that it's going to be hard to get Americans on with the idea of just offing people, okay? They know that. They know that that's going to be difficult. In Canada, it wasn't as hard, okay? They, they proposed MAID, if you've never heard of that. It's assisted suicide. And they've made it so that... It's not just people with terminal cancer getting assisted suicide. We're talking about people who have a little bit of depression. The government's like, oh, you want to kill yourself? No problem. Okay? That's what Canada's turned into. The U.S. has not adopted that mentality, uh, at least yet. You know, we've adopted a lot of other crazy things. But they're looking toward the future. One where they can convince humanity you should only have one child, maybe zero. Remember the days where China only allowed one child? Something like that. Okay, um, maybe worse though and more dystopian because you know the truth is it's going to come with a lot of requirements. Just look at what the EU is doing right now. The EU is trying to clamp down on free speech. They're trying to stop people from speaking and being able to have normal conversations. If you ask questions about migrants committing terror attacks, well, you're Islamophobic in their eyes and maybe guilty of a hate crime. Okay, this will only continue. We are at the beginning, not the end. Okay, let me tell you that. I hope in some countries we're at the beginning, but I'm saying globally we are at the beginning, not the end. In some, I hope we're at the end, but globally we are at the beginning. Okay? This is going to get worse. I think Elon Musk, and I haven't asked him this, but I think he is viscerally aware of that fact and viscerally aware we are all going to have to make sacrifices. To stop the woke mind virus that is really at the core of this ideology is going to require sacrifice and courage from all of us. All of us who care enough about our children and our grandchildren's future. Okay? And we all need to get, get on the right terms with that and be okay with it. Because I truly believe we're all going to need to take a stand. And issues like this they really define who we are. You know, if you're silent on stuff like this, what matters enough to you to risk everything? What matters enough to you to risk your job, your friendships, your so-called friendships? Because let me tell you, having been somebody who directed Oscar-winning actors, all of these, you know, big, important celebrity people, 
you know, uh, people would have thought I had a lot of friends back then. If somebody said, how many friends Robbie had? They'd be, oh, he has so many friends. He has more friends than he knows what to do with. I didn't have any friends except for my wife, truly, okay? And I don't mean that to be hurtful to anybody that I knew at the time. The truth is, coming out as conservative made it very, very, very clear to me that all of those so-called friendships, they were all born out of some type of quid pro quo. It was all expecting you to do something in return. They were not just solid friendships where you just know you have each other's backs. It was all about self-importance and fame and money. Real friendships, you know, my great-grandpa told me something once. I didn't appreciate fully when he told me when I was a young man, but he repeated it to me multiple times, so it stuck with me, and it became a core memory. And then as an adult, it was no longer just a core memory. It was a way of life. He told me, Robbie, you know, he had this really thick Cuban accent. He said, Robbie. Actually, he called me Robert, so he said, Robert. When you die, you were lucky if you die with enough friends to fill up your hands. And then later on said to me, and if you have more than that, you had no friends at all. And I think that made a lot of sense because the truth is to really have that type of friendship, it's really like family, you know? They're really like family members and those are the friends we should all want. Um, I'm not really sure how I got here. I didn't plan to talk about my great grandpa today, but um, he was an incredible man. Probably the if I if I had to say I looked up to anybody the most in life, it would have been my great grandpa. Um, just an incredible man. He loved his wife so much. He was my example um, of the man I wanted to be, and um, I'll never forget that advice because it's true. And I think a lot of people get lost in this idea that I'm going to lose friends if, I, if I'm honest about my opinions. Well, you know what? If you lose friends, they were never your friends at all. If they would abandon you over standing up on an issue that is important that you believe in, even if they disagree with you, they were never your friend. And vice versa, if you would abandon them, you know? Friendship and humanity and, and everything and love, it's all complicated. It's not clean. It's messy. And sometimes the problem with our modern society and technology is everything is supposed to be baked into this really, you know, sort of clean, concise thing that everybody can look at and go, oh, that's pretty. But the reality is humanity and our experiences, they're really not pretty. They're, they're kind of complicated. There's beautiful parts of it. But sometimes to get to that beautiful part of life, you have to go through some ups and downs. Um, I think I think I like that a lot, though. I think I like that life is not this clean, easy, perfect experience. Because to know love, you have to know what it feels like to be hurt. You know, and, and vice, vice versa in each one of these scenarios. To know pleasure, you have to know pain. Um, to know love, you have to know hate. And it, the list goes on and on. The world that these people, like Jane Goodall, want is one that's almost devoid of emotion. You know what it reminds me of? Is um, There's like this glazed over SSRI thing that happens when some people take certain types of antipsychotics where they just almost go into like a zombie-like state. Um, and it kind of reminds me of that. Like you're just supposed to be muted, not feel too much, not react too heavily one way or another. You just kind of trying to get through things. 
I think that's what they desire for all of us. For us to be in that zombie-like state where we're so fearful of, of taking any sort of opinion that might challenge authority, that might challenge the required narrative of the people in charge, and that we're so dependent on them that we're just, we're scared into silence, we're scared into really a miserable kind of vanilla existence where you don't have that, that dichotomy of feeling where you start to forget what love felt like because you don't know what hate is. You start to forget what pleasure is because pain is a foreign concept eventually. You know, and, and as time goes on, next generation, next generation, next generation, eventually we're almost like drones, you know? And I think that's the world that people like me want to prevent. We want a world where our children and our grandchildren have the full breadth and experience of being a human being, where humanity expands beyond Earth. We expand into the stars. We innovate. We create. We make use of every beautiful thing God has made out there. That's the thing. Some people like to limit God. They like to limit God to this idea that, you know, there's only us. There's only Earth. It's the only place. We stay here. That's that, you know, and, and we only have a finite uh, amount of resources. And once we use those up, we're done. And then the sun's going to explode and it's all over. It doesn't have to be that way. First of all, we have an incredible number of resources right here on Earth, an incredible number of emerging technologies that will make energy easier and cheaper year by year, okay? There is nothing evil about oil and gas, okay? All of these things are distortions built to bring you into this world that the World Economic Forum and people like Jane Goodall want us to live in. That's the truth of the situation. Um, and you know, there's another story that ties into this. I'm a little all over the place today because I didn't, um, I didn't expect to spend that much time on the Jane Goodall thing. It just really, it meant something to me far beyond her, you know, it's not personal against her, um, but it is. Does that make sense? I, I'm not inclined. I had no feeling about Jane Goodall, honestly, until I saw this video. I mean, maybe I thought, okay, cool. She helps chimps. I like chimps. Um, you know, I'm a sucker for animals, so anybody who helps animals, I generally, like, tend to have a warm feeling towards, but I saw this video, and it was, it's, it's a representation of an ideology that seeks to destroy everything I love, and so it really bothers me, and hopefully bothers you, too, um, because to be able to get to the next step, you have to be bothered. If you're not bothered, that's a problem at this point. That's the way I see it, at least. Um, this ties into this. Okay, so for a long time, it, this is one of those, you know, moments that I don't like having where it's like, I told you so. I actually don't like those. I don't like the I told you so moments. Um, I've always felt like, especially in interpersonal relationships, they can be really negative. Um but it's it's happening a lot lately, so I feel like you have to acknowledge it. But, you know, we were right again, okay? We talked about carbon passports and been talking about it for a long time, how they were going to try to stop people from traveling. And we were called every name in the book. You're all conspiracy theorists. You're crazy. Nobody's talked about this, so on and so forth. Well, we're a few years down the line, and would you look at this CNN travel article? The headline is... It's time to limit how often we can travel abroad. 
carbon passports may be the answer. The carbon passport concept centers on travelers being assigned a yearly carbon allowance. Well, aren't you lucky? You're going to get a carbon allowance. And they go on to, you know, do some of their, you know, they, they, they like to scare everybody. They do some of their fear porn about climate change. Okay, so that's, that's obviously baked into this whole article. So you'll have to ignore the fear porn that is involved here. But essentially, they say that... Uh, International tourist arrivals globally have reached 84% of pre-pandemic levels. In some European countries such as France, Denmark, Ireland, tourism demand even surpassed its pre-pandemic level. This may be great news economically, but there's concern that a return to the status quo is already showing dire environmental and social consequences. The negative impacts of tourism on the environment have become so severe that some are suggesting drastic changes to our travel habits are inevitable. In a report from 2023 that analyzed the future of sustainable travel, tour operator Intrepid Travel proposed that carbon passports will soon become a reality if the tourism industry hopes to survive. What is a carbon passport? The idea of a carbon passport centers on each traveler being assigned a yearly carbon allowance that they cannot exceed. Remember those words, you cannot exceed. These allowances can then ration travel. This concept may seem extreme. Yeah, well, you think? Yeah, it does. It seems a little extreme. But the idea of personal carbon allowances is not new. A similar concept called personal carbon trading was discussed by UK Parliament in 2008 before being shut down because of its perceived complexity and the possibility of public resistance. Well, I damn sure hope the public would resist this. The average annual carbon footprint for a person in the US is 16 tons, one of the highest rates in the world. In the UK, the figure sits at 11 0.7 tons, still more than five times the figure recommended by the Paris Agreement to keep global temperatures from rising below 1.25, or I'm sorry, 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial standards. Globally, the average carbon footprint, blah, 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 goes on. It does their fear porn. Um, and then it eventually says, Intrepid Travels report predicts that we will see carbon passports in action by 2040. However, several laws and restrictions have been put in place over the past year that suggest our travel habits may already be on the verge of change. Whatever the solution may be, changes to our travel habits look inevitable. Destinations across the globe, from Barcelona to the Italian Riviera and even Mount Everest, are already calling for limits on tourist numbers as they struggle to cope with crowds and pollution. Holiday makers should prepare to change their travel habits now before this change is forced on them. Look at those words. Remember those words. Before this change is forced upon them. Okay, we're going to keep that there. Before this change is forced upon them. They are foreshadowing to you what the future is going to be if these globalists are in power. They are not only going to do all the things I talked about earlier, okay? They not only desire that you eat the bugs, that you live in a pod, that you don't even own, that you're addicted to porn, you're unhealthy, you're unhappy, you're unfit, you don't even work, you have no aspirations, you have no goals, you're dependent on the state, you're a moocher, okay? That's what they want. They want you faithless. They want you to believe God's not real. You die, you go in the dirt, that's it. Everything's over. So you better enjoy the video games that the government gives you. And if you want those video games in your glasses or goggles or whatever the hell it is they give you, a chip in your brain, then you better stay in line. You better not speak out. You better not upset the narrative. 
okay? And, oh, you want to travel? Yeah, that's not going to work anymore. I'm sorry. Because of climate change, you're going to have to stay in this specific district that you've been assigned to, you know, because we all want to save the earth. Does anybody for one second believe that the rich will ever stop traveling? Do you all believe that they're going to have carbon allowances where they're not going to take their private jets wherever the hell they want to take them? Does anybody actually believe that? Are you deluded enough to think that the rich will be treated the same way? Of course they will not be. That's why, you know, there's been a fundamental shift like a rip in the matrix, okay? It used to be that the right was seen as this party that represented the rich interests. No, that's the left now, okay? They believe in wealth disparity. Look at the United States of America. The worst wealth disparity in our country is in blue areas, areas run by Democrats, okay? You've got the super rich and the super poor, and the super poor are expected to be dependent on government and do whatever it is the government tells them they have to do to be able to have those benefits and the welfare and everything else, okay? For daddy government to take care of you, you better be on good behavior. That's essentially the message, okay? That is what they want for the entirety of the country. They believe not only in wealth disparities, they believe in class systems. They want the rich to be treated differently when it comes to legal consequences, when it comes to travel, when it comes to access, when it comes to the ability to change things that they want changed, whether that be laws or policies, it doesn't matter. Whatever they want, they want different access, they want different rules, okay? They'll, they'll, they'll pay lip service right now, and the left will pretend, oh, we want a tax on billionaires. Really? You know what's interesting about that? All the billionaires support Democrats. Isn't that a little weird? So if you're on the left right now and you're watching this show, and you're thinking that your party is fighting against the billionaire class, go take a look at some recent political donations and ask yourself why the hell all the billionaires are supporting your party. Because... I mean, I don't have an answer for you aside from the fact that, well, they're all in cahoots together. Your party is the establishment. And yes, the right has our problems. We've got our Mitt Romneys and our Liz Cheney's. I hate even saying she's on the right. But we are not the left. Okay? And in fact, the Liz Cheney's and Mitt Romney's of the world, my argument would be they are, they are with the left now. They're a part of that globalist establishment class that seeks to destroy all of our lives for the benefit of a very small group of people because they will get more power, they will get more money. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day. When Jane Goodall said that greed is a problem, she is right. Greed is a problem among this group of globalist tyrants who want to destroy our lives and take away our freedoms. So, you know, true but unintended, okay, from Jane Goodall. That was the one thing she said that had some sense of clarity, even though it was unintended. So when you look at this article from CNN, just understand they are talking about you not being able to travel, you being limited in where you're allowed to go. Let's say, you know, they always start light. It's going to start with, yeah, you know what? Um, we're limiting the number of people who can go to Mexico this year, but you can go anywhere else. It's just Mexico this year. We're trying to limit the climate change. You know, there's been some a lot of effects last year. We're just trying to mitigate that. You have a bunch of people just go along with it. All right, I guess I'm going to go to Bora Bora this year, whatever it is, and have a great time. Eventually, it will be you can't go outside of your country. 
Then it'll be, you can't go outside of your state. What do you need to leave your state for? Okay. But the rich, they'll be doing whatever they want. And you know what's interesting about the, all this? <laughs> it's all in the name of, of global warming, right? Um, so if it's all in the name of global warming, I just want to bring this up real quick. Um, this right here that you see is a jet from a rich person, okay, a very wealthy globalist. And the headline here is, Heavy Snow and Ice Has Frozen Jets in Munich Bound for Dubai's Global Warming Conference. You cannot make this stuff up, okay? Like they, And here's the thing. I do have to give these, these elitists a little bit of credit. They are so in your face about it. And that's not because they're stupid, because these are not stupid people, okay? It is because they do not respect you. Just understand that they do not respect you. They have no respect for you. The reason so many of these things seem so wildly nonsensical is because they are. And the way it's presented to you seems almost laughable is because it is. It is laughable. That's the intention. They're, it's, they're mocking us by the way these things are being presented to us. These old paradigms need to fall. They need to fall fast. We need leaders who are not afraid, you know, and, and it's the reason why, you know, I spend a lot of time talking to normal people, okay, that are just everyday people. I have access to, to talk to, you know, I, I'll put it this way, you know, I, I, I've met kings, I've met presidents, I, I have, you know, incredible people who are considered extremely successful, who follow and all that. I spend far more time focused on your average family in America. What is their experience? Because that's who matters to me. They have almost no representation in government, not, not globally for sure, but even here in the U.S., almost no representation on a, on a national federal scale, okay? The, the special interests, the rich, they're the ones who are represented. That's the truth, okay? And it's infuriating. You know, I had a bunch of stuff I was going to talk about today, but this just, this is, this is important stuff. This is the destruction of Western civilization, the migration, the lack of law and order, the way that the Soros family is funding just these horrific crime sprees. Okay, and you say they're funding horrific crime sprees. Let me let me make make sense for you. Okay, here they're funding these DAs to be elected to ignore crime, okay, and to let criminals free. I mean, during COVID, you even had some of these Soros DAs releasing pedophiles onto the streets. Okay, little child rapists. They've decriminalized theft. You now have a situation where. <laughs> I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but you literally have a situation now in America where toilet paper is more locked up than our border. Toilet paper at a Walgreens is more locked up than our border. Think about that. That is the creation of these monsters who are running our country. And it's not just elected people. It's, it's a lot of these billionaire class folks who have decided that power, greed, and, and this whole globalist mindset matters more than the experience and joy and advancement of humanity. Because frankly, here's the part of it that is really sad and disgusting is humanity will not advance under their system, okay? We will be much closer to extinction 
under the globalist vision of the world than at any time in human history. They will drive us backwards and lead us towards certain disaster. So, you know, if people want, if you want that like golden age, you want to live in the golden age of humanity or you want your kids to or your grandkids to, golden ages are not born from peacetime. Golden ages are not born from times where things are good. And then suddenly they get great. They're born from people doing the hard things. They're born from courage. They're born from people having the audacity to speak up when every global power structure tells them that they will punish them if they open their mouth. That's how we build the golden age of humanity is people being bold and not just speaking up, but using the incredible gifts God has given us to innovate. There is so much innovation inside of the people watching right now and who will watch this later that you have not acted upon for various reasons. Could be access to capital, could be a number of things. But the truth is, we all have some sort of gift that has been given us. I'm sorry, we all have some sort of gift that has been given to us. It's, it's our choice whether we use it. And if we want a future where humanity thrives, we're going to use it. And so that's probably my greatest hope is that we can, if we can with what we're doing through our documentary and the show and activism and everything else, if we can inspire a small ideological core of people to do exactly that, to say, you know what, I'm going to do that thing. I'm going to aspire to be great. I am going to reach for greatness. It's scary. It takes courage. It takes risk. But I'm going to do it because I'd rather fail knowing I did it than never do it and wonder if I would have succeeded. That needs to be the mindset we have. You know, because the place they're driving us is not one that we want to be at. You know, I mean, it, just look look across the world at the cowardice when it comes to, you know, how they're treating this Israel-Palestine conflict. You've got places in the West canceling menorah displays, okay? Canceling Hanukkah displays after Muslims complain. Londonistan cancels Jews. Lon London Council cancels Hanukkah. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. These, it, It's all, to be honest... You almost don't need to make it up at this point because it's so predictable. Just think of the stupidest, craziest thing. This sounds like it would hurt human beings the most, and they're going to do it. They don't believe in free speech. So if this looks like cowardice to you that is born in anti-Semitism, yeah, probably there's, there's some of that in there. But it's really about getting rid of free speech, getting rid of free expression, getting rid of faith. Okay? But there's so many weird, convoluted, you know, folds to this because... The left has built what they call intersectional allyship, okay? And the truth is each one of these prongs and their intersectional allyship is starting to get a little bit uncomfortable, okay? Um, because they don't fit together. This is LGBTQ+, this is Islam, and they're together like this in intersectional leftism right now in the West, and they do not align with each other, and they don't really know how to deal with that, but at some point it's going to come to a head. And it's not going to be pretty when it does. Because in Islamic countries, it already came to a head. And um, the LGBTQ plus folks did not win that, that battle. I'll put it that way. Um, 
and I think I think you all know where that has has headed, you know, as society. And here's the other thing. Don't think that they will not do COVID again. Okay, don't think that because it happened and it's so clear to so many people that it was all it was all it was all scam in many ways. I mean to to take away freedoms. You know, obviously yes, a lot of people died, okay? Uh, for various different reasons. A lot of people died because they committed suicide from being locked down. A lot of people died because they didn't get health care for cancer and things like that because they were locked down. A lot of people died because of cardiac issues associated with getting the vax. Some people died from COVID itself. So yes, there was a real human cost, but a scam in terms of how the globalists used it to take away our freedoms. And if you think because that scam has been exposed, they won't do it again, you're fooling yourself. You know, in China, they've got this respiratory illness going around right now, and we've not shut anything down. We've not said, you know, hey, China, you're not allowed to come into the U.S. We're letting them come in just like we did last time. And let me tell you, you know what would have prevented the entire disaster of last time? There were two people I remember who spoke up before we had emerging COVID cases in the U.S., okay? This is when you saw videos of people falling over dead in China, okay? Which, by the way, I would like to know who shot those videos because y'all remember those videos? They were like zombie people falling over and they used that as fear porn in the U.S. to get everybody on board with mandates and whatnot. And yeah, that, that never ended up happening anywhere else. Well, why were those people just falling over dead in the street? Anybody ever ask those questions? Um, because that's stuff that goes on in my head is I'm like, um, what actually happened there? Because it kind of just looks like it was propaganda to scare everybody. But anyways, I digress. When we're talking about the state of what happened back then, there were two people who made a call to the White House, to uh, the federal government, and to President Trump saying, uh, shut the whole thing down with China. Okay, don't shut the country down. Don't shut our states down. Don't shut our commerce down. Shut China down. Use our leverage globally to get every country to cut off travel from China. Box them in. Isolate China. China can let this virus spread within their country. Close them off. We'll airdrop them some food or something, okay? Um, but we're not going to take the risk. Obviously, they didn't take that advice. I don't think any administration would have because I don't think they foresaw how this was going to be used. The other person who also said this was Jack Posobiec. Myself and him were the two people who were kind of shouting from the rooftop saying, hey, that's what needs to be done. In this case, again, with this unknown respiratory illness that is primarily targeting children, I say again, what do we have to lose by saying, hey, international community, everybody cut off China. Did we all not just learn our lesson? Let's let this unknown respiratory virus play out there until they can actually explain what the hell's going on. Then maybe we'll open things back up if it's no big deal. But until then, let's cut China off because all this stuff seems to keep coming out of China, okay? And they're very connected with what the, the World Economic Forum and these folks want to do because you can you can do a lot of things in China you can't do in the U.S. yet. I'll put it that way. Um Senators Marco Rubio and J.D. Vance are calling for Joe Biden to impose a travel ban on China over this unknown respiratory illness that's spreading. Um, that was posted by uh, ALX on X. Um, that's another thing I want to note. This show is almost entirely a creation of X. I mean, almost all of our content is basically what is happening on X and boiling it all down, you know, and, and talking about it. Um, 
man, there's so much stuff. I, I spent so long on the Jane Goodall thing. I don't know how long we can really uh, keep going today. I've got, let me see, we've got a couple things that we can dive into. Um, we talked about the explosion though, that was important. And the, the Goodall thing was very important. Um, we'll go to this, cause this is interesting. You've got um, Jake Tapper making an admission I did not think we would ever see from the Washington Post uh, had a fact check about Joe Biden uh, from earlier this month, um, noting that Hunter Biden admitted in court in July that he was in fact paid substantial sums uh, from Chinese companies. Kessler wrote Hunter Biden reported nearly 2.4 million in income in 2017 and 2.2 million in income in 2018, most of which came from Chinese or Ukrainian interests. But this, and this directly goes against what Joe Biden said in the debate in 2020 uh, with uh, Donald Trump. Take a listen. My son has not made money in terms of this thing about, uh, what are you talking about, China. What you None of that is true. He made a fortune in Ukraine, in China, in Moscow, that is simply and various not other places. True. So it's from two different debates, but I mean, Trump was right. I mean, he did make a fortune from China and Joe Biden was wrong. I don't know that he was lying about it. He might not have been told by Hunter, but this blind spot is a problem. It's a problem, one, because Republicans aren't going to let it go, that's for sure. But also, these problems are continuing through the legal system. It's not as though this is something that's been settled in other jurisdictions and Republicans are just harping on it. It is an ongoing thing in our courts. It's not going anywhere. This is a blind spot. Does it concern you as a Democrat? Well, I think dads have sometimes and parents sometimes have blind spots about their kids, for sure, and the president may no exception. But nothing has tied the president to any of Hunter Biden's dealings. There's no whiff of him being involved or him being implicated in it. And uh, it's, you know, I think it's not something the voters. Oh, really? No whiff. Well, directly after that, um, you know, it just so happens that Comer and the House Republicans released evidence that Joe Biden was directly paid by Hunter Biden's company. Yes, the same company that is under investigation. Okay, and that company is, yes, again, the same company that took payments from China, okay, from Chinese associated entities as well. So you've got CCP money flowing into Hunter Biden's company, then it feeds out to Joe Biden, okay? So that is, that is something that is not disputable at this point. I want everybody to just let that one sit with you for a second, okay, and think about that. Um, but... <laughs> While we're on the subject of the Biden administration, I saw this headline from CBS News, and um, I almost died from laughing. The U.S. economy is doing even better than the government thought. I'm sorry. Was the government confused and they thought we were like Nigeria or something? I, I, I don't understand. What, what do you mean the government says the economy is doing even better than they thought? Can anybody explain this? Who in the government was like, because these people are always painting a rosy picture, were some of them understanding that things were like bad, but they were, they were thinking like, okay, this is, we're a third world country. I don't understand. Can someone explain to me how this headline makes sense? I mean, it's like Pravda, honestly. I mean, we just have a state media. That's what it is. We have a state media. All right, last thing we're going to go into. Why conservatives are the best parents, okay? This is very, very, very interesting. I loved, loved this. 
not just because I'm a conservative parent, but because it is sound, okay? So I'm gonna start with this. This poll is not done by a far-right group. It's not done by a right-wing group. This was done by Gallup, one of the most respected pollsters in the world, okay? This is a nonpartisan group. Gallup just looks for the truth. They're evidence-based, they ask questions, they take those, they formulate answers, okay? So let's start here. Quote, conservative parents are most likely to adopt parenting practices associated with adolescent mental health, most likely to effectively discipline their children while also displaying affection and responding to their needs. So this is, I want you to look at this chart real quick. Can we pull the chart up on screen? So when you look at this, it's showing the percentage of parents with above average relationships with their children. Okay, so this is the quality of the parent-child relationship by parental characteristics. And it goes from very conservative down to very liberal. You can see here that the lower bound of very conservative in terms of their relationship quality is still higher than the higher upper bound of liberals. So that means that the worst relationships that very conservative parents have with their kids is still better than the best relationships that liberals have. This is self-reported by Gallup talking to the children of parents and the parents. So they're talking to both parents and children to get an understanding of their relationships, the dynamics going through the same checklist, the same sort of formula for judging this. And what they found was that conservative, very conservative families had that much of a better relationship with their kids that the worst relationships were still better than the upper bound of liberal parent-child relationships. Let that sink in. Um, you know, so this is probably the most mind-blowing part. You're not going to believe this because honestly, blew my mind. Gallup went into this looking for what is it that makes a difference in parent-child relationships? What makes a good parent? Do kids just automatically have better parenting if their parents are, you know, wealthy? Or if they're, you know, a different race? Or if it's this? None of that ended up really statistically mattering that much. Income didn't end up mattering that much. Race didn't end up mattering that much. You know what mattered? Political ideology and your approach to marriage. Those were the two biggest factors as to whether you were a good parent. Okay, so some parental characteristics do matter. If I could talk, that would be good. Yet some parental characteristics do matter. Political ideology is one of the strongest predictors. Conservative and very conservative parents are the most likely to adopt the parenting practices associated with adolescent mental health. They are the most likely to effectively discipline their kids while also displaying affection and responding to their needs. Liberal parents score the lowest, even worse than very liberal parents, largely because they are the least likely to successfully discipline their child. By contrast, conservative parents enjoy higher quality relationships with their children characterized by fewer arguments, more warmth, and a stronger bond according to both parent and child reporting. Now, when you look at this again, the quality of the relationship with partner is also tied, but attitude toward marriage, okay? 
this was a big thing just like political ideology. So if you were extremely pro-marriage, your child turns out better and their relationship with you is stronger. If you are very anti-marriage, your child is less likely to do as well or to be as close with you, okay? And this shouldn't be surprising to people. Marriage has been a critical part of human existence for a very long time. The changing of it is something that is dark, to be frank. You know, if you if you think about marriage in the sort of flippant way that it's approached now in society, where every, I mean, it seems like divorce is around every corner. It's unhealthy for kids, and that was the third thing that was tied into this. The worst relationships for kids were ones with liberal parents and divorced parents. Okay, those are the two things that were the most toxic to a child. And they looked at this for a long time. So parents who think of marriage exhibit better quality parenting practices and have a higher quality relationship with their teens. And guess what? Their teens have a better approach to relationships they will then get into. And they're going to be better committed partners for the person they marry. After a decade of surging adolescent me mental health problems and suicide, the nation's leading public health authorities have declared an emergency. Unfortunately, the solutions proposed by organizations like the CDC and the American Academy of Pediatrics, such as increased funding for diagnostic and psychiatric services, do not meet the challenge and ignore what are likely to be the most important causes. Adolescent biology has not changed. My colleagues and I at Gallup launched a study this summer to understand the causes. We surveyed 6,643 parents, including 2,956 who live with an adolescent, and we surveyed an additional 1,580 of those adolescents. We asked about mental health, visits to doctors, parenting practices, family relationships, activities, personality traits, attitudes toward marriage, and other topics, including excessive social media use, as discussed in prior work. I present the results in a new Institute for Family Studies and Gallup Research Brief. The findings are clear. The most important factor in the mental health of adolescent children is the quality of the relationship with their caregivers. This, in turn, is strongly related to parenting practices, with the best results coming from warm, responsive, and rule-bound disciplined parenting. The data also reveals that the characteristics of parents who engage in best practices and enjoy the highest quality relationships they're conservative. When it comes to the quality of parenting practices and the quality of parent-child relationships, there is no variation by socioeconomic status. The results may be shocking to many highly educated Americans who were taught to believe that socioeconomic status dictates everything good in life. Income does not buy better parenting, and more highly educated parents do not score better either. Parenting style and relationship quality also do not meaningfully vary by race and ethnicity within our U.S. sample. These results are not unique to the Gallup sample. In 1997 and 98, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics collected summary data on adolescent parent-child relationships. My analysis of this data show that parental income, wealth, and race-slash-ethnicity don't bear any relationship with the parenting measures predictive of the long-term well-being of children. Education explained less than 1% of the variation. So again, this, this is that chart I showed you earlier, just larger in case anybody wants to screenshot. I'll leave it there for a second. It shows they're very liberal. You know, people have the better outcomes. 
And then it goes on to admit that political ideology is the strongest predictor. Conservative and very conservative parents are the most likely to adopt the parenting practices associated with adolescent mental health. They are the most likely to effectively discipline. And again, liberal parents score the lowest, worse than the very liberal parents, largely because they're the least likely to successfully discipline their children. I just wanted to say that twice so people get it through. Um, aside from political ideology, parents who think highly of marriage by disagreeing that it is an outdated institution and agreeing that it improves the quality of relationships by strengthening commitment, exhibit better parenting practices and have a higher quality relationship with their teens. Parents who wish for their own children to get married someday also tend to be more effective parents. Those who embrace a pro-marriage view on all three have the best outcomes. Other relationships seem to affect the current child-parent relationship. Parents who give high ratings to their relationship with their spouse or romantic partner are also more likely to adopt best practice parenting strategies and enjoy higher quality relationships with their teens. And you can see here again the quality of parent-child relationship. Um, very conservative wins out. And, you know, when you look at this, you really have to ask yourself if any of this is a surprise, because it shouldn't be. It really should not be a surprise that conservative parents turned out to be the best parents. I think that the wise thing to do at this stage is to ask, how do we spread conservative parenting styles? And I think it's that things like this need to be shouted from the rooftops. This data is irrefutable. This is looking into the lives of many thousands of children and their parents as that whole time range from adolescent to adult, looking at how their life was affected by the parenting strategies of their parents and the ideologies of their parents. And to show that none of the things that people thought mattered, like money and education, and what really mattered was their core political ideology, philosophy, and how it baked into their parenting style and how pro-marriage they were. It should wake some people up that, hey, you know what? I want my kids to turn out great. Maybe I need to rethink the way that I'm approaching things. Um, again, you know, I hate to say we're right again, but we are. <laughs> so we'll have a lot more to talk about on the show tomorrow. We're going to have a really cool guest tomorrow on the show. We're going to be talking to a child who was affected by school choice in a really positive way. So I'm excited to bring that to you guys and to hear from that child so we can hear directly from a kid who was affected by school choice, got to switch out of the public school system to a school that better fit for them. And um, I think that's going to be a really cool show. So we'll see you guys soon. Thanks for joining us today.